Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So the podcast is back. Uh, it's very nice to be talking to you all again. I was off for a few weeks uh, over the Christmas break. I had to uh, recover from a minor op and uh, six weeks um, of not being at work uh, managed to create a fairly large um, backlog. <laughs> uh, I think most of you will uh, empathise with the, the situation um, as an academic. Uh, nobody gets on and does uh, all the things that you've left on hold for you. They just stack up and wait for you uh, when you come back. So uh, so I came back and, um, and it's taken me a good few weeks to get back to uh, to normal um and uh, and yeah do i when do i define i've caught up because you know what you're never caught up as an academic um but my sense is that yeah that um that pressure of thought of all of the things that were delayed and missed deadlines and extensions yeah most of those are now out of the way and we're to kind of the, the normal level of uh, of not managing to fit everything into to the week and um and yeah so uh, there's never enough time to uh, to to do all the things that you want, and uh, and this is a priority for me. Uh, for for me, this is one of the ways in which uh, I can generate more impact than than most through the research that that I do. Uh, and so, making time for this is is a priority, and uh, and you as an audience are a really big priority for me. So, I'm back. I'm here. Uh, I've carved out some time in uh, in my diary this morning to restart the podcast. And I thought that uh, today it's worth uh, going quite deep and um, and thinking about uh, something that came up for me last week. Um, so uh, it turns out I'm not allowed to talk about this, which is a bit awkward. Um, uh, I, I tweeted uh, about this and uh, was promptly told by my line manager that this was an internal process and not for public consumption. Uh, and so uh, I, I deleted my tweet in the end. Um, the reason I tweeted about uh, about this particular incident was that for me this was uh, a failure. Uh, it was something that, uh, that that I wasn't proud about, that was quite challenging for me. And I think it's really important to talk openly uh, about our failures as well as our successes. And I think uh, especially when you get to a point in your career where I have, uh, people make a bunch of assumptions about you that, you know what, everything you write is uh, is paradigm-shifting, original, really significant work. Um, uh, all the impacts that I do just uh, shine brightly and, uh, and create massive benefits for everyone that I intend it to. Uh, and of course, that's not the case. Things go wrong, wrong on a regular basis. And I think that um, the more uh, I talk about that, uh, the more that empowers others to say, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm feeling kind of similar. I've had a bunch of things that haven't gone right for me recently, uh, and and you know what? Uh, yeah, together, uh, let's uh, let's let's create a bit of resilience as an academy and say, yeah, none of us get this right all the time. We all fall off the bike, but you know what? We get back on again. Um, uh, and and my hope is to inspire you to get back on your bike if you're feeling uh, similarly uh, similarly wounded. Um, so without saying too much, uh, uh, most universities are going through a mock research excellence framework uh, exercise, a mock ref, uh, where your impacts and your outputs uh, are being uh, graded. 
so uh, I've got um, a, a case study that is um, shortlisted in Newcastle. I've got a, a different case study that is being considered by two other universities. Um, and, uh, and I've got a bunch of uh, output to my case papers that, uh, that I've submitted to get internally reviewed. Um, uh, we've got a, a one to four star rating and um, as a, a, a professor in a top 150 global university, uh, it's expected uh, that, uh, that I will pull my weight in terms of producing a good few of the top rated four star papers um, that, uh, that go in in, uh, in our submission. Uh, so that's that's the pressure on me. Um, less pressure on others uh, perhaps to do that, um, but I need to pull my weight. Uh, and so uh, I, I submitted uh, what I thought were uh, the papers that might get that four-star grade. And uh, and one of the papers, uh, a paper that um, that I'd invested a lot of time and energy, um, seven years in the writing, this particular paper, uh, and it came back from the internal review as two-star. Um, so it wasn't even three-star. You know, I could have coped with three-star, but it came back as two-star. And I'm like, seriously, did I get it that badly wrong? Um, uh, and of course, where do you go with this? Um, uh, well, uh, maybe you're not as, uh, as as vulnerable as I am to these kinds of thoughts, but for me, uh, I went straight into uh, into imposter syndrome. Um, uh, I mean, me, I I thought I was I was okay at this kind of stuff. This is pretty basic. I'm getting critiqued here for my methodology, and I thought this was robust. I thought this was sound. How could I have missed something that is downgrading this two marks on the basis of methodology? Um, uh, and and now, if if I'm producing stuff like this, then oh my goodness, I mean, what else might I have written that might be really bad? And and who else has read this now? And this is in the public domain, and I've got this kind of searing embarrassment that this thing that I was so proud of, that it might actually just be really embarrassing. Uh, and then from there all these other thoughts start to kind of cascade. So I've got all these different projects that I'm leading and are we succeeding or not? Well, actually, uh, how many public papers have we published? And the, the two biggest projects that I'm, uh, that I'm leading, we haven't got a single published paper out of them yet. Um, and actually, maybe we won't ever get any papers out of these. And um, uh, uh, and then I'm kind of thinking about uh, my, my leadership and maybe I'm, I'm really not leading these projects the way that, that I should. Um, uh, and then I'm starting to think about how I'm managing my postdocs on these projects. And um, and I'm thinking, well, you know, how long is it since I actually had a face-to-face -face meeting with one of these postdocs? And do I really know if they're okay or not? And uh, and, and and maybe actually I'm a really bad manager and, and, and these people feel completely unsupported. And, and actually now I'm thinking this is kind of chaotic and I don't really know what's going on in all of my projects. And, and they're about to crumble before my eyes and some terrible disaster is about to befall me. And, and you know what, my company, yeah, well, well, I might be training people all over the world, but actually, the stuff we're doing is really basic. It's really obvious. It's really simple. I mean, anyone can come up with the idea that impact is benefit and clarify this and give people some tools to make this stuff happen. We're going to get someone who's going to come along. They're going to replicate what we do. They're going to outcompete us, or I'm going to say some crazy thing or tweet some crazy thing like I did last week, and I'm going to get the sack. I mean, yeah. So maybe this is slightly catastrophizing, guys. Um, 
Uh, maybe I'm, I'm worse than most people, but my sense is, you know what? Uh, if you actually analyse the thoughts that, that just on that subconscious level start to play out over the day um, uh, and evening uh, and sleepless night after a bit of negative feedback like that, um, uh, then I don't think that, uh, that, that that description of imposter syndrome, as I've just given you, is maybe that unrealistic and uh, sorry, unrepresentative of, of what others feel like. Um, so, how do you deal with with these kinds of uh, of, of thoughts and then the feelings that uh, that they they deal with? Well, uh, while I was uh, while I was off sick, I um, uh, got the opportunity to read quite a lot of books actually. So um, I'm sure this is going to influence a few of the episodes that come uh, uh, this year. Um, uh, one of the books that I read was by Seth Godin, um, and uh, and he said um, something pretty uh, harsh when it comes to to, to imposter syndrome that uh, that maybe kind of sit up, um, uh, and uh, and he said, look, when when you experience uh, imposter syndrome and let it. Uh, dominate your actions and your decisions. You're not just being shy. Um, uh, actually, you're stealing from people. Uh, and so he said, basically, imposter syndrome prevents you from putting out your best work. You sit on it. You don't submit it to the publication. You don't ever uh, actually submit it to to the funding panel, um, or you don't ever try that new idea for generating impact. Whatever it is, you just don't do it because you're paralysed by by imposter syndrome. Uh, and actually, there are people out there who need your work. Uh, these are problems that your discipline or that the wider world needs to solve. And you have something to offer, and you're holding that back because of in imposter syndrome. Uh, you're withholding uh, what you have to give to the world. Um, uh, and so it, it made me think, you know... <sighs> There are no excuses here. I have to get back on my bike. Yeah, I might feel pretty rotten, um, uh, but but you know what? I I have to do something that will get me get me back. And uh, and for me, actually, um, and maybe this is a bit self-effacing, but but it works for me. So maybe it'll work for you. Uh, for me, actually, realizing that the reason I have to get off the bike I've just fallen off and start pedaling again for all I can uh, is for other people. It's not just for me. And maybe I should be saying here that I should be doing this just for me because I value myself enough. But actually for me, uh, the idea that not getting back on the bike, not starting to just get a grip and continue with the great research that I'm doing is stealing from someone else. That actually is a huge motivator to say, you know what, no more pity party here, no more procrastinating, actually sort this out, Mark, and get get back to this, um, make this happen, and, and don't withhold what you've got to, to give to, to the world. Um, and this is, if I'm honest, uh, part of the reason why I'm starting, restarting my podcast today. Because you know what? Yeah, I, I've got, I feel uh, I feel that I've got all these things that I need to try and catch up on and all the rest of it. But you know what? Uh, I have stuff that is of value here, and I need to get back and uh, and start giving to to you to you to this community uh, as well. Great. So. Um, as I've been reflecting uh, on this, and, and this was stuff I was reflecting on while I was off sick, but that has really kind of snapped into focus since last week, uh, I've come up with three solutions to imposter syndrome. Um, uh, and this is very much experiential, but it does draw quite heavily on my book, The, Re the Productive Researcher, and some of the theory that sits behind that book. 
Um, but but I think what is valuable about this is that this does come from my own lived experience. This is stuff that has worked for someone who has suffered from imposter syndrome all of their career, in fact, all of my life, um, and still suffers uh, from really extreme bouts of imposter syndrome at this point um, now that I'm a professor. Uh, uh, and I think that because that's where they've come from, um, I think that these are quite new, they're quite different, quite original, and my hope is that as a result this will really give to you, it'll be something that, that will be really valuable. So uh, solution one um, is to recalibrate your judgement to reframe your value. Solution two is to rebalance your internal invisible power with the external visible power that's given to you by the world. And the third solution is to create equally credible evidence-based alternative narratives to your imp imposter syndrome uh, narrative. Uh, and I'm going to go through each, through each of these three in, in turn. So uh, the first of these is, is recalibrating your judgment to reframe your value. Uh, and um, uh, I've just been for a cycle this morning. Um, so, uh, so here's an example from, from cycling that just explains the idea of recalibration um, and how this reframes how you value something. Um, so um, if I've cycled 10 kilometres in a fairly slow time, I'm starting to, to think, oh my goodness, I spent how long out there and I only did 10 kilometres? That's really crazy. I, I'm really not fit. And uh, I'm signed up for a 66-mile race uh, next month. Um, this is reality. I am slightly nervous about this. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm never going to be able to do this. This is crazy. What on earth was I thinking when I signed up for this race? And then I realised, oh, hold on a minute. That was 10 miles, not 10 kilometres. Ah, Okay, so that wasn't too bad a time. It wasn't brilliant, but that was pretty average. Okay, instantly I'm reframing that thing and valuing that in a completely different way. Uh, and so my question is, what are the yardsticks that you are measuring yourself up against? And can you legitimately find alternative ways of measuring up so that you feel better about yourself? The way I do this is I go to my identity pie chart. So uh, if you've read The Productive Researcher or heard me talking about this in, uh, in my podcasts uh, or, or videos, uh, the idea is that I create a pie chart with all the different things that make up me, who, who I describe myself as. So I'm a father, I'm a researcher, I'm a teacher, I'm creative, whatever. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, and I look at the uh, at that and and the values that underpin that. So as part of this exercise, I get people to uh, identify the different parts of their identity that make up who they are, uh, and I ask people to identify if any of these are values, or if there are values that underpin um, uh, these different parts of uh, of their identity. Um, and of course, these are the parts of ourselves that, that we need to make sure we're making time for um, if we don't want to feel a really deep sense of dissonance um, uh, and the things that we need to get right if we want to have a sense that we have work-life balance. Uh, go back to some of my other stuff if you want more on that. Um, so for me, uh, three key things always emerge from that when I cast my mind back to that. Um, it's this integrating value of, uh, of empathy. Um, and how that uh, that sense of empathy is enacted through my family and then through my research embodied within the concept of impact and the impact I can have from my work. Um, uh, so um, how am I being these things? 
and now rather than measuring myself up against, in the case of last week, the ref yardstick and saying, huh, I don't measure up as much as I expected. And my colleagues are all now standing in judgment of me and saying, you know what, Mark, that thing you thought was four star, it's two star. Um, uh, and, and I'm taking that embarrassment, I'm taking that sense of failure, and I'm saying, okay, uh, that's real. I'm not going to sit here and defend myself and appeal and complain. Uh, okay, um, great. Um, but... Uh, ultimately, um, now to stop myself going into that whole catastrophizing imposter syndrome narrative, I'm saying, yeah, but how last week? How, in fact, in that very paper that, uh, that, that got downgraded, have I enacted the things that are most deeply important to me? And in this paper, in fact, this is a paper that is underpinning research for one of my uh, impact case studies. Uh, and as I now dwell on the impact that has arisen from, from that research, yeah, I now feel like this, this has value. Maybe it doesn't have as much value as I thought it had in, uh, as an output in REF, but this still has real value actually in REF terms, uh, underpinning uh, my impact case study. Uh, and um, and in more intrinsic terms, uh, as uh, an outworking of that principle of empathy through my through my research, great. Uh, and ultimately, what I'm doing here is that I'm stopping judging myself through the eyes of others. Uh, and as I do that, I am now able to have self compassion and to love myself. Uh, and of course, uh, we all know that you can only love others when you love yourself. Uh, and so going back to Seth Godin's uh, comment uh, that I'm stealing from others, I'm withholding stuff. Well, you know what, if I want to give to the world, if I want what I've got to, to have value for others, then I have to value it myself to start with. And this is for me the most fundamental way of undermining imposter syndrome to say, you know what, I have value, I am valuable, I have worth, therefore what I've got has can, it has worth and uh, has value and is worth putting out to the world. Uh, and when you do that, you start getting that positive feedback of, yeah, thanks, Mark, for starting restarting the podcast again. Thanks, Mark, for that paper. Thanks for uh, the impact that, that came out of that. And actually, yeah, you know what? This isn't so bad after all. So my second uh, solution to imposter syndrome is rebalancing your internal invisible uh, power. And uh, I'm going to look at personal and transpersonal power in particular with the external, external and visible power that is given to you by the world. Um, uh, and this really does depend on whose eyes you're looking at this through, which is um, partly why this is so problematic for imposter syndrome. Um, uh, and so uh, for, for, for members of the public, um, members of our family, maybe even um, uh, the fact that we have a PhD um, or, hey, I'm a PhD student, but hey, I am a PhD student. I am on the track to get a PhD. This is the, kind of the pinnacle of intelligence as society would, uh, would, would frame it. Um, and now I am an academic, I'm a lecturer, maybe I am even a professor. Um, but wherever you are in that hierarchy, uh, there are people that will look at you and think, 
oh my goodness, Mark's so intelligent, I feel really embarrassed talking to him and pitching this idea because he's going to see through it instantly and, yeah, and, and whatever. So people have their own imposter syndromes and we can activate that just by being us because people think we're clever. Um, and especially as you climb that hierarchy, uh, increasingly the world gives you this status of you are the expert, uh, the, the world expert uh, in this narrow thing, but hey, you have this respect. Uh, and as you look at the way the world views you, as they give you all of this social and hierarchical power, um, and I would argue that uh, in Western civilization, uh, the fact that you are an academic in certain circles does give you social power. Uh, in my experience, in other circles, uh, it does the opposite of that. But but let's yeah, either way, it can be a problem. Um, so the social and hierarchical power that you are given by the world is often the thing that activates imposter syndrome. Well, that's how you perceive me. But if you could only see inside my head to see all of the doubts, to see all of the flaws and uh, and and limitations in in my research, then you would never call me an expert. Oh my goodness! Um, uh, and and so then, what do you do? Do you go around saying, no, 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 I'm not an expert. I'm rubbish. I, well, actually, no, that's not very healthy either. Or do you just accept that? everyone thinks I'm an expert, but I'm not. And then there's, there's this huge dissonance. Well, my suggestion is is is, is neither, that, that you actually um, reduce that dissonance by shortening the distance between how you feel about yourself in terms of your personal and transpersonal power versus the power that the world has given you. And as you rebalance that power, and increase your sense of personal and transpersonal power, then actually there is not such a gaping gulf between how you see yourself and how the world sees you. And actually you start over time to become much less vulnerable to imposter syndrome. Uh, and it really does work. This is a, a long-term journey I've been on. Um, uh, so for me, I lived in imposter syndrome 24-7 um, when I was uh, uh, an early career academic. Um, and this is something that I'm still vulnerable to, uh, that I, I get a bout of, as I did last week. Um, but uh, but that is something that is much less common now, and this is this is the longer term uh, process that you can go through. The first is that transforming thought that can actually almost instantaneously uh, reframe things and be your kind of get out of jail free card when you get a sudden bout of imposter syndrome. And this is the work now of months and years. I'm going to argue. Uh, this is not a transforming thought that can happen instantaneously. This is not even a work of days and weeks. Uh, and so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through um, uh, some of the stuff from the Research Impact Handbook, actually. Um, there is a book, uh, sorry, box in the second edition. This is uh, box 10, page 182, if you want to look at some more detail on this. Um, and um, what we've got here is... Uh, a set of reasons why you may feel <laughs> imposter syndrome, the, the, the hierarchical and the social power that is given to you by the world, uh, and a set of things that, uh, that you can then do to, um, to, to shorten the gulf between these two perceptions, the, the personal and the, tra the, the, the transpersonal stuff. Uh, so having a look at a few of these. Uh, one of them uh, I've framed uh, in the book as self-awareness. Um, uh, I think uh, I would perhaps frame this uh, as mindfulness, uh, for those of you who are familiar with that kind of literature and practice. 
but it is this idea that I'm going to catch the the rising panic of imposter syndrome, um, and that is certainly how I feel it. Um, before I am fully immersed in that uh, in that panic, so those early signs of yeah, uh, my heart is beating faster. There's this kind of clenching of a fist uh, somewhere in my chest. Where is that coming from? Um, uh, and catching where that's coming from. Yeah, there's a bunch of thoughts here that are beginning to lead to other thoughts that you know what I'm going to just catch and I'm going to do something with. Um, and this leads to the, the third solution, which we'll come on to later. Um, but, but at this stage, what I'm doing is I'm capturing that stuff, uh, and I'm saying, right, uh, let's now uh, compare and contrast all of these actually now slightly crazy thoughts that I'm having uh, with reality. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going back to my first solution, and I'm going back to my time chart, uh, sorry, my identity pie chart, uh, and I'm saying, right, what are the things that make me me? What are the things that I value most in life? Uh, what are the things that underpin, that animate, that inspire who I am day to day? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? Uh, and then, yeah, uh, by contrast to that now, how do I actually feel in this situation? Uh, and for me, it's about being mindful of those underpinning values on a day-to-day -day basis uh, and calling them to consciousness, which is why in the productive researcher, I suggest that we create a shortcut, a, a motto, a, a, an image, something that means it's there in the front of my mind constantly, i.e. I am mindful of my values. And for me, the most powerful one is this image of, uh, of my daughter wearing my shoes in my front garden, the concept of empathy, because you put yourself in other people people's shoes. So I'm mindful of my values, I'm mindful of the very earliest signs of imposter syndrome, uh, and, uh, and I instantly go to that solution um, sooner rather than later, and I recalibrate uh, my, my value, um, but I don't let it get out of control because I'm self-aware, I'm mindful, I catch it early. The, uh, the next one on my list here is uh, self-confidence and, uh, and assertiveness. And, um, and this is actually, for me, about learning new tricks. Um, uh, uh, so this might sound quite on the surface, but actually what I experience from this is that uh, over the years, I've learned and just added um, one trick after the next to make myself look uh, more self-confident and more assertive. Uh, and I've discovered that, uh, that actually, as I look more self-confident and assertive, and others then respond in kind, I actually start to feel it. Uh, and this is something that I discovered um, uh, when I had a panic attack in my very first ever lecture. Um, so I didn't get to the end of it. Um, so I got heckled. Uh, I had a panic attack, went completely blank, um, and, uh, and I had to walk out of the lecture theatre. It, uh, it was fairly mortifying. Um, my uh, PhD supervisor at the time, I was a teaching assistant for him, um, helped me to get back into this uh, and to go back to the next lecture and uh, and make this happen. Um, and what he said was, yeah, Mark, uh, act like you're confident. Um, and he taught me a bunch of body language skills. Um, uh, and, and I took it fairly extreme uh, just to see if this would work. Um, and to my surprise, it really did. So from being panic-stricken um, to actually getting through my second lecture. Uh, I, I actually came in and sat on the front of the desk 
Um, so this is, there was a desk at the front, I sat on it. Uh, I kind of put one leg, um, kind of, uh, so my, my ankle on my knee, that kind of crossing my legs. Um, and I kind of leant back um, you know, with my hands on the desk um, and just gave this impression of total chill. Um, uh, one of my hands now uh, I've taken off the desk and I'm kind of uh, putting it out to look confidently like I'm using some kind of gesture that is quite open. Uh, I'm purposefully talking slowly um, and this sense of ill, of chill of ease, of slowness, uh, of confidence that I'm acting. And this is a pure act at this point. My heart is thumping. <laughs> it is an absolute act. Um, uh, actually, um, within seconds rather than minutes, I start to feel, uh, you know what? I feel fairly chilled. And yeah, it wasn't the greatest lecture, but I got through, I got to the end. Um, uh, so uh, little things that you can do, actually practicing your handshake. People tell you these things and, and you just think, oh my goodness, I don't want to be fake. I don't want to uh, be someone I'm not. Um, uh, but actually little things like this I find really help. So uh, there's a certain level of firmness, uh, holding on for long enough, but not too long. Giving that person eye contact as you shake their hand and not instantly dropping that eye contact. Little things like that are, are learned behaviours that I can do that instantly create a first impression that then is confident and that person responds in kind and enables me then to act out and start to feel, yeah, I feel quite confident. Um, I'm standing now solid, um, two feet slightly apart, slightly apart on the ground. I'm not swaying. I'm not pacing. I'm not kind of doing a mini dance um, on the spot here. I am solid. Uh, I've got open body language, open hand gestures. And as a result, I create the sense of solidity to my audience. And actually, I begin to feel more solid myself. Something I heard recently uh, from someone, um, I have no idea if there's any research behind this, uh, but I thought it was a cool idea. Uh, it was this idea that um, there is this evolutionary response um, to, to someone um, who has their hands behind their back or their hands in their pockets, that uh, you instantly uh, are suspicious that they may be holding a weapon. Uh, and that if you want to create a really positive, trusting um, uh, first uh, impression, that you make sure that your hands are visible and they are open um, uh, and so I started doing this in uh, in all of my trainings and public uh, public uh, well just public speaking um, where I make sure I'm conscious of that my hands are here and they're out and they're open um, so I'm not even holding the zapper when I start here hands open I'm trustworthy um, and who knows if it makes a difference um, but for me whether or not it makes a difference it's these little things that as I act them out make me feel like I look confident and as I look confident I feel confident and great. Strength of character. Um, uh, so, so for me, this is uh, clearly a, a, a work of a lifetime. Um, uh, but, uh, but how can I uh, really enact this to give myself, myself this greater sense of inner confidence, inner power, to shorten um, that, that, that or bridge that gap between how the world sees me and how I see myself? Um, well, if I have cross red lines, if I've made errors of judgment uh, in the past, uh, my experience is that these can be really deeply disempowering. They can be subconscious narratives that are there with us for our entire lives. That one mistake I make, that one thing. 
Uh, and so there's some work, there's some deep work there in terms of just self-compassion, forgiving myself so I actually move on rather than carrying that regret with me. Uh, but uh, for me, I think um, the errors of judgment that I've made have undermined my self sense of, um, of of self-efficacy. Well, if I could have done that once, then who knows if I might do something like that again in the future. And there's that nervousness. Uh, and so for me, it's about thinking very clearly about what my values are, how those values translate into very clear red lines. I, I will or will not do this. At this point, I stand up for myself. At this point, I stand up for others, uh, pretty much no matter what the risk is to me. Um, uh, and for me, it's, it, it's a two kind of full thing. I, I'm working out what are my red lines based on my values and what is my risk perception or, or how much risk I'm prepared to take. Uh, because for some red lines, actually enacting those red lines will mean you're putting your job uh, on the line, your reputation on the line. Um, and I'm doing that, 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 that work ahead of time. This is a red line and this is one red line that I will not allow to be crossed at any price. And you know what, if this means I lose my job over the heads of sticking up for this red line, then I will not regret that. And I know as I now search for a new job and try to put food on the table for my family, that I will, uh, I will love myself for the decision I made, despite that challenge. Um, so, the the next one is uh, is being seen as someone who's got life experience, who has the ability to overcome adversity, um, uh, and uh, and this is something that 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 no, again it gives you perceived power. Um, and uh, and actually, as I dwell on these things, it gives me a sense of power as well. Well, okay, I'm in the midst of a failure. But you know what? As I think back through all the other times that I've failed, all the other things that have gone wrong that looked like I was never going to be able to recover from them, you know what? I did recover. And this is how I dealt with it. And this is how I adapted. And you know what? Everything ended up being okay, ultimately. Uh, maybe it took a long time, but we got there in the end. Um, and so... <clears throat> This comes to the, the, the third point as well again, but, but just trying to, to be very much aware of how I have overcome adversity really gives me confidence that, you know what, in the midst of this crisis, it's going to be okay. I don't need to catastrophize. Um, uh, I've got track record here, um, uh, I'll, I'll, be it. I'll, I'll be okay. Um, uh, and interestingly, this, this then feeds into how others perceive you as well and the power that, that, that you actually have as a, as a leader. Um, uh, so this is for me, um, as I was talking about at the beginning, tweeting about my failures. I, I don't want to come across like uh, I am this other person who's in some league of my own, who is completely uh, unattainable, unreachable, untouchable. Um, I could never be like that. I could never relate to someone like that. Um, uh, and for me, that's about being an empathic uh, leader. Uh, so uh, I need to express those. But what I'm doing now is rather in the midst of my imposter syndrome expressing, oh my goodness, guys, this is a disaster. Uh, we're all doomed. Um, uh, I'm just making a point as I get through my imposter syndrome of dropping in. So yeah, um, uh, we're in our next monthly meeting and uh, that wasn't great last month. Um, uh, we we didn't deal particularly well with this. Um, what can we learn from this as a team? Uh, and actually, just let me point out, you know what, in the intervening period, uh, we've actually managed to transform some of this stuff and do some really cool stuff that we wouldn't have been doing now if it weren't for the crisis that we had to deal with 
perhaps badly in our last meeting. Um, so actually, you know what, guys, let's reframe this a bit. And uh, and it looks like, you know what, we're, we're managing to come back from this adversity. And I give my colleagues that strength, that sense that, yeah, there's that certainty, certainty that we can overcome this. Uh, and as I habitually talk about failures that have been overcome, there's this increasing sense that, yeah, if I follow Mark, there will be, no doubt, a disaster at some point, but here is a leader that I can trust will uh, not panic and will enable us to get uh, out of that situation and overcome adversity. Uh, two more left in terms of trans personal power. So one, one more left in, per in terms of personal power, and then I'll move to transpersonal power. Um, it's the idea that I am someone who builds others up, who encourages, who finds the best in people, rather than the, being someone who criticizes and tears people down. Um, uh, and for me, there's, again, this internal thing that empowers me, as well as this uh, external thing. Uh, and so when I make it a habit uh, on purpose to try and look for the positives, even when I have to give people negative feedback, I'm trying to find something positive. Um, each time I'm meeting with a PhD student, with a postdoc, um, I'm trying to not just go through the mechanics of, right, what we're going to do next. I'm trying to look for one thing that very clearly they did well and explain why I'm so pleased with this and why this was so great and why they should be proud of that. Um, uh, that as I, as I practice that, there is this feeling that I get inside that, that actually is a really positive, inspired feeling that makes me feel like, wow, I work with incredible people. And actually, these are people who inspire me and who I can learn from. And, uh, and now, yeah, this, this is, this is, it's a really positive kind of place to, to, to be that makes me feel, actually, I'm with people, I'm with teams that empower me to success, that inspire me, that make me feel more secure uh, and less likely to feel like I'm on my own in my, in my imposter syndrome. By contrast, if you are someone who is constantly criticising, constantly pulling people apart, uh, criticizing people behind their backs, there is this growing sense that you get that actually other people are doing this to you. Uh, and actually there's this sense of, of uh, what's the word for it, um, uh, an insecurity um, that, that actually the whole world is criticizing me. Um, uh, and actually you created that yourself, uh, and it's probably not reality, but well, why wouldn't other people be criticizing me when I'm so critical? Um, uh, and so you get into the spiral where actually now to feel okay about myself, I need to criticise even more because by contrast, look at me, I'm, I'm better. Um, so so there's that, that internal thing, but also equally there's an external thing that people actually um, uh, want to follow you for these deeper reasons rather than just your social or hierarchical power because actually now you're someone I want to be around. You're the kind of leader I want to follow because when I follow someone like you, I know that I'm going to be inspired. I'm going to uh, find the things that, that are best about me. You're going to draw out that best in me. I'm going to build on that and together we're going to do something really incredible. Uh, I'm probably spending too long on this, so just one final thing on, on transpersonal power. Um, the transpersonal power is sometimes described as spiritual, so a lot of people find this quite challenging. Um, but for me, I'm going to take a, an academic definition of spirituality. This is being connected to something which is more significant than yourself or beyond yourself. Um, so it could be a football team, it could be nature, it could be a, a religion uh, if you wanted it to be. 
Um, but um, but there's something deep about uh, this kind of power um, that, for me, you find uh, at the 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 intersection between your priorities um, and your values. Um, sorry, your identity and your values. So when you do that time chart, um, sorry, I said it again, uh, that, that priority, ah, my goodness, I'm getting completely mixed up here. Sorry, guys. Um, so when you do your um, identity pie chart, that's what I was looking for, sorry, uh, you, you look at those different parts of your identity, you identify the, the values that underpin them. Uh, it's at that intersection between your identity and your values that the, that you can start to think about how you might operate in the transpersonal uh, space. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so now as I am mindful of those values, uh, I've got that shortcut, I'm enacting that day to day. Uh, as I'm going back and I'm sitting now taking some time to recalibrate uh, my values and uh, and measure myself against those rather than how others are now judging me. Uh, I access something at a much deeper level. Um, uh, where do those values ultimately come from? Um, are those things that were just given to me by my parents, um, by my culture, perhaps? Um, do they come from a deeper place um, that, that is independent of genetics and, and, and environment or, or, or culture? Um, and now can I connect with, with that thing? And, and for me, what I find is whether it is just your values, whether it is something that those values come from, there is a deep well that you are now able to draw uh, upon uh, for the self-confidence and the self-compassion and the compassion and forgiveness that you need to enact towards others to just get through life without having regrets and um, uh, and, and resentment uh, towards the, the the world and the people around you because you know what life is is, is tough. Um, uh, and uh, and as a result, uh, you become someone uh, who is who is known for 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 compassion, for forgiving others, not holding uh, things against people. Uh, you get known as someone who has values that include altruistic goals that come from a place that means that yeah, I don't think if I work with this guy, he's going to manipulate me because actually there's there's something deeply authentic about why he is pursuing that altruistic goal, and I can sign up to that without any sense of, of threat. So finally, uh, my third solution then. Uh, it's the, the idea of uh, creating equally credible, evidence-based alternative narratives to your imposter syndrome narrative. Uh, and for me, this is the, the solution that kind of draws together everything that we've talked about in the first two. Uh, if you read The Productive Researcher, um, uh, you'll see from um, Alistair Scott, I have uh, borrowed the, the many-story uh, approach. Um, uh, and I find this a really powerful way of, uh, of reframing uh, my imposter syndrome narrative. So the imposter syndrome narrative um, is problematic because it is rooted in truth. Uh, I know <laughs> objectively that that paper has not met the, the relevant um, standard. 
Um, I know that I've messed up. Things have gone wrong. This is my fault. Um, uh, and and so this is not about becoming a narcissist and saying, well, you know what, nothing is ever my fault, and it's always someone else's fault, and uh, and constantly defending myself and and appealing everything and and, and saying I'm brilliant all the time. No, uh, I'm accepting. Uh, yeah, uh, the reason that I'm here in imposter syndrome is because I am fallible. I have limitations. I have weaknesses. I have. Um, I have vulnerabilities. Um, I have a phone on silent now. Sorry, <laughs> um, uh, and um, uh, and as as a result uh, 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 of that, I'm in imposter syndrome. But at the same time, let's have a look at my strengths. Let's have a look at the things that went well, that are my successes. Let's have a look at the times that I actually came out of that disaster and turned it into into something good. Um, uh, and, um, and, and, and now, actually, what's the evidence for that? Um, and, and I'm building an evidence-based narrative which is stronger and stronger and more and more convincing. So now I have two narratives that are both true, but one of them is helpful, one of them is unhelpful. Uh, and now I have a choice. Uh, I can stay mired in imposter syndrome with my unhelpful narrative, or I can decide, yeah, I'm going to go with the helpful narrative here, which is evidence-based, and I'm going to dwell on that. And that's the narrative that, that I, I talk to myself about and that I put out to the world increasingly uh, to shorten that gap between um, uh, how I feel about myself and how the world uh, feels uh, about myself. So uh, it's my impact very often that, that I go to to say, well, you know what? Uh, yeah, my projects aren't all working perfectly, um, uh, but you know what? This is this is the point, and we're getting uh, we're getting impact. Um, uh, at home, um, my my imposter syndrome um, is well. I'm not a good enough father. I'm not a good enough husband. Um, uh, and actually, well, okay, I've got limitations. I've 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 made mistakes, and I can dwell on that and and be disempowered. Um, uh, or I can paint myself as well. Okay, I'm a me. I'm a bit of an absent-minded professor, um, uh, uh, in a in a more kind and self-compassionate way. And actually, now this is now an evidence-based narrative, which is a positive reframing. Um, because okay, absent-minded um, is actually my greatest weakness at home. Oops, I forgot. Uh, I'm really sorry. Um, but actually, the thing that my wife values, um, one of the things my wife values about me is, uh, and my kids, I think as well. It is the the thoughts, the ideas, um, the the conversation, the depth to which we go, um, uh, and those two go together. So, what are the uh, the things where your your weaknesses, uh, your greatest weakness, is your greatest strength? The the idea of the absent-minded professor, um, uh, and can you use that to celebrate your strengths whilst accepting that you're weak um, and and that you have limitations? Um, so 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 this is realistic. Um, uh, so uh, this is about taking negative comments, making them explicit, you're being mindful about them, so this takes part of their power away, you're standing back from them to objectively, objectively analyse them. Um, uh, uh, and and so so now yeah um, uh, with my paper, uh, all of you guys weren't convinced I could substantiate every single one of my claims, um, and I could think my paper was rubbish and start to burn with embarrassment. It's in the public domain. I think I'm rubbish and blah blah blah. 
Um, but now I'm accepting that some people might read this paper and um, if they read it in that way, they may well have some doubts. Um, but none of my co-authors, none of my reviewers or the editor had any issues. This is a matter of perception. Okay, there's a risk that some people might not believe uh, this particular uh, line of argument, but okay, um, it's not necessarily complete and utter rubbish. Um, and you know what? We did the best with the data that we had. There were limitations. We explained what our limitations were. Uh, and in fact, this was one of three contributions we made. And the other two, well, nobody's complaining about them. Um, and actually, for me, this was the least important of those three strands. And well, yeah, great. So I don't feel embarrassed about this. I'm not going to complain um, and try and appeal this. And I'm going to learn from that experience. So uh, there was clearly a blind spot. How could I fix that? And actually, my common way of doing that, and I can do this in my discipline, is I'm going to invite a co-author in who I think might be able to spot that blind spot and help me fix it. Uh, in this case, I was working with a co-author who had power of veto. She said, if uh, if we're going to use my data, I don't want any additional co-authors. Um, I wanted to invite someone in who was from a very different perspective, who I thought would have really added to the paper. Uh, that got vetoed. Um, and well, actually, you know what I can see now? Uh, had I been able to use my uh, uh, the, the coping mechanisms I have for blind spots, I, I probably wouldn't have fallen into that trap. So you know what, I'm being self-compassionate with me now. It's maybe not the world's greatest paper, but it's not the world's worst, worst paper. And I move on now. Um, so three mechanisms that I believe have real power to enable us to move beyond imposter syndrome, not only in the crisis moment, but uh, in a deeper, longer term way that enable us to become less vulnerable to imposter syndrome. Recalibrate your judgment to reframe your value. Rebalance your internal invisible power uh, to shorten the distance between that and how the world sees you, that external visible power that they give to you that makes you so uncomfortable. And create equally credible, evidence-based alternative narratives to your imposter syndrome narrative uh, and dwell on those instead. I hope that's been useful. Let me know uh, what you think about this. Uh, I love talking to you, whether it's uh, via Twitter, via email. Um, a lot of you are on my uh, email list. Just reply to one of those emails. Um, uh, I'll get that. Uh, tell me how this, this works. Uh, this works for you. Uh, and maybe we can represent some of that discussion in, in future episodes. But go. Uh, go in peace. Uh, go in self-compassion. Um, uh, and, and my hope is that, that this is deeply empowering for you. <laughs>